All right, Rabbi Silver, it looks like you can okay. get started. Thank you. Okay, let's begin. We're up to chapter 37. And we're up to the um, <clears throat> the 31st Pasuk of chapter 37, Breshit. What's happened is that Yosef has been sold to the Yishmaelim who bring Yosef down to Egypt. That's chapter, that's in verse number 20, 28. In 29, Reuben, whose intention it was to bring him back home, he was also the one who said, throw him into the pit. But his intention was no one's looking to pull him out of the pit and to bring him back to his father. He returns to the pit and Yosef is not there. The brothers had contemplated selling him. He returns to his brothers and says in the 30th Pasuk, the young boy is, is not, is missing. And as for me, what am I to do? Where shall I go? So Ruben's plan to save him has been, cannot happen because Ruben thought he would still be there. But in the interim, apparently, other people, Midianites, have come by, pulled Yosef out of the pit without the knowledge of the brothers and sold him to the Ishmaelim who had a caravan. The brothers had seen the Ishmaelim, which is a caravan, probably animals, etc., taking long journeys. But the Midianites who come by, it says nothing about a caravan. It says some Midianite men came by and they were not obvious. The brothers didn't see them. Perhaps they came from a different direction. We don't know. In any event, the plain reading of the Chumash is that the brothers had contemplated selling him, never got around to doing him, the Midianites pulled him out of the pit. The Midianites sold him to the Ishmaelites who brought him down to Egypt. And now, what are the brothers to do? Yosef is missing, and I would add presumed dead, but they have no idea he was sold. It's in the middle of the desert. There's a pit, there's no water. He's missing a Nenu. So now we have beginning in the 31st Pasuk, what the brothers do after they've been informed by their own brother, Ruvain, that he's missing. Obviously, when you read the Chumash, we all understand that they didn't actually sell him themselves. Because had they sold him themselves, when Ruvain says he's missing, they would have said, dummy, we sold him 10 minutes ago. But they don't say that. So obviously, they don't know where he is either. Nobody seems to know. Now we have the 31st Pasuk. It says, They took Joseph's coat. Remember, they took his coat off him when he first came. And they slaughtered a goat. And they dipped the coat into the blood of the goat. So they have this coat, which clearly is Joseph's coat, the Ketonet Pasim. And they take the coat and they dip it in the blood of a Sirizim of a goat. And now in the next, the Pasuk, verse 32, et Pasim. So this is actually a very interesting verse. They're all pretty interesting. But what's interesting about verse 32 is that the, there's a word there that appears to be superfluous. And that is the very first word of verse 32. They sent the coat and they brought it to their father. So what does it mean they sent the coat and brought it to their father? 
the Torah could have said they sent the coat, or the Torah could have said they brought the coat to their father. So we mean they sent the coat and they brought it to their father. So I would have said they brought it to their father. Father, we found this. Do you recognize it or not? So the word by Yishalchumi is very superfluous. And therefore, since the word appears to be superfluous, we all know that it's a very important word. The word to send is important over here, and especially since it appears to be completely uh, superfluous. The idea of sending, and we're going to come across this in the next chapter as a central word. It does appear in other stories of the Bible. And often when you send something, not always, but often when you send something to a third party, the idea is to disassociate yourself from the particular action. They sent the cult to their father, and they, whoever the they is, brought it to their father, and they asked them a question, which in this case is a rhetorical question, clearly. Is this the cult of your son? Hakena, recognize, please. And that these words are very important, the words that will appear throughout the coming narrative. Father, recognize, or do you recognize, recognize, please? Is this the code of your son or not? Now, since only one such code exists, it's not really a question. It's a rhetorical question in a sense. They know the answer. Um, but it's phrased in terms of a question as if they don't know, which we, which troubles the reader, I think, or should trouble us, because they, of course, do know. And therefore, it's rhetorical. And rhetorical questions typically are hostile questions. When God asks questions, for example, typically they're critiques and not questions because after all, God knows the answer. So if you know the answer, what are you asking me for? You're not really asking me, are you? It is a, it is a hostile, you know, is this the code of your son? You know, knowing full well that he knows it's the code which he, not only the code of his son, which he actually gave him. Um, in any event, and now we have Yaakov's response, which is very interesting. And the Torah says, in the very next pasuk, he recognized it. You have to keep these words in mind because these are, are critical words in the, in the Joseph narrative in general. Recognition, non-recognition, we'll see. Of course, he recognized it. By Yomer, and now we have the interesting response. Ketonet Bani, the coat of my son. Ketonet Bani, the coat of my son. Chaya a wild animal has eaten him. Torof, Toraf Yosef, Joseph has been torn by a, has been torn up. Torof, Toraf, references the double Toraf. Joseph, it's interesting that two things about Yaakov's response. First of all, the response of Yaakov to seeing the coat, bloody coat is exactly what the brothers had contemplated earlier. Before Joseph came to them, one said to the other, here comes the dreamer, uh, why don't we take him and throw him and let's kill him. Let's kill him. This is back in verse number 20. Let's kill him. To throw him into a pit. And we'll say a wild animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. 
That's what they had contemplated doing. But it never comes to that because Joseph's not in the pit. Something happened to Joseph. They don't know what, but he's missing. But Yaakov's response is exactly the response that they had contemplated setting up as if it's not necessary even to set it up. The code is sufficient for Yaakov to jump to the conclusion. is like, say, this is the code of my son. The code of my son, it's like a, a, a cries out in response, the code of my son. And then he must have been eaten by it, devoured by a wild animal. Joseph has been torn up. Torof, Toraf Yosef. It's interesting that in this verse, there is Rashi quotes a medrash. Torof, Toraf Yosef, a wild animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn up. And Rashi quotes a medrash. Niba Vuloyada Mashaniba says the Medrash, he was prophesying without knowing he's the prophet, without recognizing his own prophecy. A wild animal devoured him, says the Medrash. This refers to Mrs. Potiphar, chapter 39. And Joseph has been torn up. When you see a Rashi like that, Niba Vuloyada Mashaniba. Question for us is how to understand that. Uh, what is what is the Medrash trying to tell us? What is the Medrash trying to teach us? It's very easy to go wrong in these things. And proof is that many people have gone very wrong in terms of the intention of the Medrash. The Medrash does not intend to say that Yaakov knows what happens to Yosef. It is obvious from these this part of the story. And throughout the story, he doesn't know what happened to Yosef. He may later be suspicious of the brothers that something's not right. That could be so. But over here, he has no idea. He presumes that Yosef has been devoured. He, he thinks the worst, basically. He's been torn up. But the Medrash is making a different point. And the Medrash is actually looking at seeing something in this verse that the reader would not necessarily see. And as when Yaakov says, Tarof, Taraf, Yosef, a trefa in the Torah is an animal that has been torn up. The trefa in the rabbinic text is an animal that has been, or a person for that matter, who's been severely damaged. So that person may not live very long, or he has a very, very bad uh, Consequences of this, the tree fault, the tree, etc. Torof Toraf Yosef, it's been cut up. Trefa in the Torah is an animal that's been cut up. So Yaakov says that he's been torn up, but the Torah will tell us just a couple of verses later, a few verses later, in fact, the last verse of chapter 37, that Joseph is not dead, not torn to pieces. But rather, in verse number 36, the Midianites, we'll get to this, sold them to Egypt. You know, the Ishmaelites sold them. There it says the Midianites sold them to Egypt. The Potiphar, Suiz Paro, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, Sarah Tabachim. Sarah is an officer. A Tabach is a butcher. Now, it's not clear whether he butchers animals or whether he butchers people. 
but or both. But of course, the sar had tabachim, what tabach would do was he cuts up animals. That's what the Medrash is seeing over here. Niba yada masha niba, says the Medrash, Jacob doesn't know anything of what happened to Joseph, but in point of fact, he speaks the truth. We would call it in our parlance irony. There's an ironic truth to what Jacob is saying. And the Medrash, of course, always demands a deeper understanding. So on one level, isn't it striking, says the Medrash, that Yaakov says, Tarov, Tarav. And at that very moment, Joseph is being sold to the Sarah Tabachim. But there is a deeper point over here about Chayara Chawatu, which the Medrash identifies with Mrs. Tabachim, which is Potiphar's wife. And the Medrash wants us to reflect for a moment on the situation of Joseph. Whatever we think of Joseph so far in the Chumash, the fact of the matter is Yaakov saw in Yosef, and later we will see in Yosef, a person of enormous talent, enormous ability, and who evolves into something very significant in terms of the family, an integral part of the family, etc. Fact of the matter is that most of Joseph's life he is in Egypt. The first after age 17, he's in Egypt for the rest of his life. And basically in Mitzrayim, the struggle that Yosef has in Mitzrayim, basically from the Torah's perspective, is the question to what degree Yosef retains his identity as a child of Yaakov, as a member of the covenantal family. To what extent Yosef, through no fault of his own necessarily, becomes embedded in Egyptian culture, married to the priest of Egypt, wears Egyptian clothing, et cetera, et cetera, names of some forgetfulness. He struggles with this. And what the Medrash is getting at is even if he succeeds at the end of the day in being uh, Jacob's son, which he does at the very end of this book, the fact of the matter is he spends his whole life struggling with Mitzrayim. And the Medrash it wants us to reflect upon that. What if Joseph were never in Mitzrayim? Maybe there would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He does have this enormous ability. God does speak through Joseph. So the Medrash wants us to reflect upon this and puts it in terms of Yaakov spoke the truth, unbeknownst to himself, not that he has a clue, unbeknownst to himself, he spoke a truth. That this person will be struggling his whole life with issues that worry in a different place. He might have turned out to be a very different kind of person. And that's what the Medrash wants us to understand. And of course, he's picking up on the language of the Torah. He is at Sarah Tabochim. He's at the butcher. Tarof, Taraf, Yosef. I'll take a few more verses and I'll stop the comments and questions. So Yaakov, right, has been this rhetorical question. There's something about the question, which is, if the word nasty is the right word, right? We found this, tell it. Is this the code of your son? They say, your son, right? Is the code of your son? One could even feel, and it's not surprising to us, of course, we know they hate Joseph, but what about Yaakov, who actually favors Joseph? Here's this guy who's taunting them from their perspective, and Yaakov is favoring him. So there is 
perhaps also the hostility towards Yaakov, as expressed in that pasuk. Meanwhile, Vayikra Yaakov Simotav, Vayosem Sak Bimotnav, Vayitabel Abno Yamim Rabim. So Jacob tears his clothing, and he um, put on sackcloth, sign of mourning, and he mourned his son for many days. So Yaakov is in Avelut for many, many days. His sons and his daughters goes up to console him. But he refused the consolation. He refuses to be consoled. I will go down to the grave mourning my son. Right? And the Torah says, his father cried. His father cried. Um, his father cried when they translated over here, bewailed him. Okay. So there's a big emphasis. Notice the word below, his son. Jacob has many sons, but he cried about his son. And he says he will continue to cry until the day that he dies. The one thing that marks the mourning period in Jewish tradition, and even in the Chumash, and Israel mourned for Moses for 30 days, and mourned for Jacob for 70 days, or, se or seven days. And these are, in our tradition, very significant, the whole period of mourning. We have Shiva, we have the day of death, we have the seven-day period, we have 30 days, we have the year for parents, and these are all markers in time, which presumably, among other things, allow us to move forward in life despite devastating loss. And over here, the sense we have over here is we will mourn until the day that he dies. And I will say to mourn for the day that you die is not the same as to be upset about it. It is true that parents that lose children uh, in a certain sense, never fully get over it. You live with it. You don't get over it. That's not the same as saying, and over here it's very striking, I will mourn for my son till the day I die. We're talking about a man that has 11 other sons. So there is something over here which I suggest is out of proportion, given the, given the fact that he has all these other children. But and given the fact that we know he favored one over the others, there's something about it which is problematic. Now, on the other hand, refusing to be consoled means, we have to remember, Jacob suspects that Joseph has been torn to pieces, but we have no proof, because all we know is, I mean, we know, what the Torah says, what the brothers know, Yosef ain't dead. Not dead, he's missing. So that's very important. So what Jacob may be saying, among other things, is, look, I suspect he's died, but I have no proof. So there's no closure. I mean, in death, there is closure, but here there can't be closure because there is no, there's no body. He's Eneno. He's missing. His father cried. Let me take one more verse and finish the chapter. And then I'll take comments and questions. Now the Torah says, Meanwhile, the Torah gets back to the narrator. It tells us, in fact, 
Earlier it said Midyanim, here it says Midyanim, Midianites or the Midianites, sold them to Egypt. The Potiphar, Seris Parot, the Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, Sarah Tabochim, the chief butcher, the chief butcher. It's interesting, just to one who asked, thought about this verse, that the Midianites sold them to Egypt. The Torah said just a few verses earlier that the Ishmaelites brought them down to Egypt. Midianite men passed by, pulled Joseph out of the pit. They sold Joseph to the Midianites for 20, 20 kesher. And they, the Ishmaelites, brought him down to Egypt. And by the way, chapter 39, the Yosef Uradim makes the same point. He was Potiphar brought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down. Later, Joseph will say to the brothers, I am Joseph, your brother, who, the one you sold to Egypt. He says, you sold me to Egypt. So who is it? Is it the brothers? Is it the Midianites? Or is it the Ishmaelites? And the point of the Chumash, I think, I mean, this is what is driving some to claim that the Midianites and the Ishmaelites are one and the same people, which is very problematic to say such a thing. But the point of the Chumash, I think, is there is the way you tell the story and they're the facts. The facts we know. The brothers contemplated selling. Meanwhile, the Midianites pulled them out of the pit. They sold them to the Ishmaelites who brought them down to Egypt. That I think is pretty much incontrovertible to the plain reading of the Chumash. But the point is that each of those three parties, the Torah holds responsible for sending Joseph to Egypt because each one was a necessary uh, link in the chain. And the Torah, in different places, is interested in emphasizing one or the other. When Joseph speaks to the brothers, he says, I'm the Joseph whom you sold to Egypt. So Joseph may not know exactly how it transpired. But the point of it is, and the point of the Chumash is, the brothers are responsible for the sale of Joseph because of the alternative that they were going to kill him. But they, we hold them responsible because he's sold from the pit in which they threw him. So they are responsible. Over here, it's interesting that the last verse of chapter 37 is curious. Here, it said earlier, Midianite traders came by. Here it calls them Midianim. It's clearly the same people with the Yud or without the Yud. I just wanted to reiterate what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that the word Madon in biblical Hebrew and this word appears many times in the book of Proverbs. In Mishrei, Madon. Madon means a quarrel. So the Midanim, the Torah plays with Midanim, Midianites, but the quarrelsome ones. The fact of the matter is, quarrel or reeve or Madon is why Joseph gets sold to Egypt. And the Midanim is a way of saying the Midianites pulled him out of the pit. But the reason this kid is in Mitzrayim has a little to do with the Midianites and everything to do with Joseph's brothers who are, who are engaged in a conflict. Hebrew word would be Riv or Madon. So it's the way for the Torah by hinting at and use of language, coming back to the point which actually matters to us, matters to the reader and to the narrator, which is not about Midianites or Ishmaelites, which are interesting for the other reasons. At the end of the day, the brothers have caused his sale. So the alternative to causing his sale is killing him. But in minimally, they have caused his sale. And in fact, 
not just cause the sale. They were contemplating the sale as well. In the person of Yehuda who speaks up, yes, he says, as our brother, we shouldn't kill him. But at the end of the day, he's the one who contemplates, who says to everybody else, and they all hear or accept, unclear, and that, in fact, is what does happen. So therefore, from this Torah standpoint, we have to hold the brothers accountable as well. And that's what we actually care about, Joseph and his brothers. Now, before we start chapter 38, which we'll spend some time on, chapter that I've taught a million times, there's always something new. So let us um, stop here for a moment and take comments or questions. Okay, well, you want to, either people can speak up or take in the chat one way or the other. Um, I'm going to let Chaya do, I guess, the uh, question okay, moderating. Whatever. I see a lot of questions have come up in chat. Uh, Chaya. Go ahead. Here's yours. Yes, Chaya. Thank you so much, Kayla. Uh, yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, why don't we first take the speaking questions, and I'll um, I'll read from the chat in a moment. So, uh, Aviva, go, ahead. go ahead. Aviva Davidson, do you have your hand raised? Do you want to? Yes. Aviva, you're muted. Um, that when the brothers um, speak to their father, they don't say, our, do you, is it our brother's coat? And he never says your brother's. I mean, I know right. that the loss, of, but that I think that's also stating the issue of the brothers for the three fathers, um, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Asab, and Joseph and his brothers. So by omission, that to me is eloquent. Right, well, certainly the case that, let me just pick up on what you're saying and, and make, make the, have the following observation, which is a good introduction to the next chapter. You have three generations. You have first Abraham's two sons, Yishmael and Yitzchak. Then you have Yitzchak's two sons, Yaakov and Asa. And then you have uh, Yaakov's sons, let's say Yosef and the other brothers, okay? Now, when you think about it in terms of progression, I think progression might be the wrong word, maybe regression. <laughs> in the first generation, there is some conflict between Yitzhak and Yishmael. When Yitzhak is born and there's a party and Yishmael, Sarah sees Yishmael Mitzachet, okay, taunting, mocking, seeing himself as the real Yitzhak, whatever, however you interpret it. There's no sense that Yishmael wants to harm Yitzhak. None whatsoever. Yishmael and Yitzchak. Yishmael is either sees his own position in the family, questioned, etc. So there is some conflict. Sarah responds very forcefully, and Yishmael is exited from the family. But there's no sense actually ever in the Chumash that Yishmael and Yitzchak are actually bitter enemies, or that one wants to harm the other. I mean, Yitzchak wants to harm nobody, but Yishmael either. They come together to bury their father, and there's no sense of any kind of real hatred between them, no sense of a threat. That's not true in the next generation. With Yaakov and Esau, we know that after Yaakov takes his blessings, takes the birthright, that Esau contemplates killing, he says, when the, my father's years, my father, time to mourn my father comes, I will kill my brother. Esau is a killer. And he says, he thinks or whatever, that he plans, he plans to kill Yaakov at some point, but when Yaakov meets him later, so all sweetness and life, and there's no sense in the Chumash that Esau really, Yaakov was afraid. But there's no sense in the Torah that Esau is going to kill Yaakov. And in fact, he has offers support, et cetera, et cetera. 
whether he still harbors some resentment is a good question. I've dealt with that in the past, but he certainly is not going to kill him. And he offers to help him. But he did think to kill him. And now we come to the next generation of Yosef and the brothers. And here, it's not about thinking to kill him. They do think to kill him. But they also try to kill him. Because let's throw, first they say, let's kill him with their own hands. Then Ruben says, don't kill him with your own hands. Throw him in the pit, in which he will die. Now Ruben thinks, throw him in the pit and help when now looking up, pull him out, which is what he tries to do later when he has the plan to sell him. He rushes back to the pit too late. But you have a progression over here or a regression. In short, things are not getting better, they're getting worse. That's a very, very important point. Because the question the Torah is asking is, can't get much worse than this when one brother actually attempted murder. And even if, even if, okay, so they caused the sale, kidnapping and selling, which is also a capital offense in the Torah. So basically things are going from bad to worse. And in the very next chapter, we're going beginning with Judah leaving the family. The family is in the, in the process of, of, of dissolving basically. You already have Shimon and Levi. We have Reuben sleeping with his father's wife. We have the Joseph story. And the very next verse is Judah, who's a leading brother. He's, he checks out as well. And this is a family that Yaakov dreamt would be a bayit, would be a, somehow a structure, an all-inclusive structure, which is in the process of utterly self-destructing. So that's a very important point. And yes, and it just confirms what I was saying in terms of the focus on my, my son, your son, son, and there's no mention of brother. The only person who mentions brother is Judah. When Judah says to his brothers, we can't kill our brother. Judah is the only one who actually talks about brotherly responsibility. Of course, before he understood, he wouldn't say, let's sell him. But he does know you don't kill your brother. So we'll, we'll get to that, uh, come back to that in a few minutes. Anybody else for a comment, either in the chat? Thank you for that. Anybody else? Um, I'd like to, I'm going to ask you some questions from the chat. Um, we have two related questions or comments, um, which is, um, Ozzy commented that maybe um, Yaakov is sort of suspicious that that the, um, his sons have done something to Yosef, but doesn't want to confront them directly. Um, and then on a similar vein, um, sorry, I'm trying to find who it was who asked why, um, why Yaakov Sorry. Oh, it was. Oh, it was also Ozzy. I'm sorry. Um, why he immediately jumps to the conclusion that an animal is what harmed Yosef as opposed to a person, and and how he comes to that conclusion. Well, first of all, I would say that. I mean, I. I responded to that earlier. I don't think we have any evidence over here, that he suspects. He suspects his, 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 his sons. There's no sense yet. Later on, I do think it's true that later on he raises the question. It's very hard to know in the Chumash what Yaakov suspects or not. Over here, I don't think that he suspects them. The fact of the matter is, and I don't know to what extent Yaakov would know this, but the blood on the coat is the blood of an animal. Now, I couldn't distinguish the blood of a goat from the blood of a human. That doesn't mean that in those days, where they're shepherds and they're working closely with animals, and they don't know very well what the blood of a human is as opposed to the blood of a goat. I suspect they do know very well that there are differences. wouldn't be apparent to me. Um, but I think what's over here is, you know, jumping to the worst possible conclusion, which is actually, seems the Chumash seems to be saying is a very logical conclusion. 
I sent him out, you know, on this alone in a mission, and you know, and here he comes back with a. Here they say they found a blood-stained coat. So we, um, he assumes the worst, as we often do when we're worried about something. Uh, we often jump to you know worst possible conclusion, which is what's over here happening over here with Yaakov. Um, I, I wanted to come back to one other point in terms of the language here at the end is very important. There are certain keywords. In every story, there are keywords. One is recognition by Yaakov. We'll get to that later. And there's another word I mentioned last week, which appears here as well. Very important word. See, words can be, even the most innocent word, depending on the context, can take on a very significant meaning. Words have meaning within their context and how the Torah uses the word, repetition of words, where you see the word, etc. It's not just the number of times. It's the place where you find the word. And here the word that's interesting for us is the word matzah. Father, we found this. We had this earlier in chapter 37. A man finds Joseph who was lost. And the man sent Joseph to the brothers. And he finds them in Dotan. It doesn't say they find him. It says he finds them. And now they find. But what do they find? Not Joseph. They don't say they found Joseph. They find his coat. It's interesting. Let me make a tell you an observation that Devorah, my wife, actually, and there's um, an interesting thesis in the book, so I'm not getting into it now, but she has the following observation, which is that in two earlier stories of the Torah, where there's a transfer from a to B, or from father to son, that the transfer from father to son, continental transfer from father to son, in the first case of chapter 22, it's the binding of Isaac, where the blessing to Isaac is confirmed as you born in son, the context of it is the sacrifice. The sacrifice instead of Isaac allows the, we're not getting, I can't get into this now, but what allows the transfer to take place is the sacrifice. Then she noticed that in chapter 27, next generation, where Isaac's gonna transmit the blessing he possesses to his son, who initially thinks it's Asa, but the context of the transfer of the blessing is the quasi-sacrifice. Go out to the field, hunt an animal, bring it back to me, give it to me and I will bless you. So there's a kind of quasi-sacrificial act there as well. In each case, that precedes the transfer of the blessing. Now, when you come to the Joseph story, it's clear that Jacob has singled out one son above all the others, which is Joseph. He makes that clear. He gives him the special coat. And we know what coat symbolizes some kind of important position, whether it's priestly garments, whether it's kingly garments. And the coat in the, in the story of Breshit also figures significantly. But here it's striking that here, the brothers come back with the coat, with the blood-stained coat of Joseph, right? They say, we found this coat. The coat itself is the blood-stained coat. In other words, when you think of it in terms of the context of the transfer from, from A to B or B to C, and the potential transfer of, of C to D, right? 
but here this this one might say the sacrifice as it were, right? The, the, the blood-stained cult, the slaughtering of the animal is what actually moves us in exactly the opposite direction, which is we found this blood-stained cult, which is the cult of Joseph, which suggests to us that unlike in the first two instances, it can be a, a straightforward transfer from father to son. In the case of Joseph, this particular slaughtering of the animal and the bringing back of the Joseph's coat, right, which represents Joseph, works in exactly the opposite direction. It sort of is the opposite of the first two. It's a way of the of them saying, or maybe the narrator saying, not like the first two cases. It is a straightforward transfer from father to son, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. There's no Jacob to Joseph here. It can't work that way. It's not going to be like that. It can't be that way. And the question is actually, can Joseph be included at all? Which is the dominant theme, I think, of the rest of this book. And how Yaakov will find a way to mend this family, which is in the process of self-destructing. So that's the... But no, I don't think that Yaakov suspects them at this point. That's, I, don't, I don't get that from the from the shooting. Okay, now we'll begin. Isn't this a natural outcome of the story of God favoring one son over another and the outcome being bloody? Uh, of course. And Hevel. And Hevel, the first story. And, um, and, sure. that's, and so this is um, not a regression. It's the natural outcome of one son being favored over another. That's true. But my point is that in this particular case, unlike the other two cases, Yaakov says explicitly, I want everybody to be included. So the point is, in this particular case, the favoring of one over the other runs completely counter to what Yaakov actually wants to happen. And, you know, everybody has their loves and often it's best to keep it to ourselves. In this case, Yaakov doesn't just favor Joseph, but he actually demonstrates it by giving him this coat. I don't think it's an accident that it's the very coat which demonstrates his favoritism that they bring back to their father, bloodstained. And well, maybe you recognize this coat? It's not, it's not an innocent statement on their part. To me, it's a very hostile statement. So my point is, I agree. My point is that, it, but this is a man who says, I'm gonna build a house. I'm gonna build the inclusive structure. But everything he does actually is working against what he wants, what he's trying to accomplish. Now that was my point. But certainly it is, as one might say, a natural outgrowth of the first story of brothers in the Torah is Kain and Hevel, God favors one, Kain gets angry. God says to him, don't be so angry. It'll still work out well for you. If you do good, you're gonna be okay. Don't worry about it. But Kain doesn't accept it. It leads to the killing of his brother, no doubt. Well, let's always start Judah and Tamar. Can I and, ask you uh, something? Yes. Uh. Um, well, if, if you think back when the brothers saw Yosef coming, it yes. says, Vayir Ehumei Rachok. So how did, yes. Right. So how did they recognize him? I always think that it's that coat, that distinctive coat. Right. So as soon as they saw that, that, you know, right. irritated them and that was right. what set them off. And the Good first point. thing they do is they strip him of that coat that symbolized right. everything. And right. so that was the, the flashpoint. Sure. Um, 
and it's of course the tragedy is that often happens in life is that Joseph had actually come to make peace. Right. He says, I'm searching my brother for my brothers, but they never gave him the opportunity to actually hear what he has to say, which is a problem. And people don't allow the other person to speak or, or, or listen to what they're saying. And very often, had we only paid attention, we might have had a very different outcome. But um, that's part of the tragedy. So, the, you know, the Torah again is parcels out all the blame. He's guilty, they're guilty, Yaakov's guilty. Doesn't matter guilt. The question is how do you make it, how do you how do you bring things together? And that's the problem. But I guess if he, right. I guess if he had thought really to make peace and if he was sensitive to it, he would not have worn that coat. Well, maybe to, right, right. you know right. that set them off. Um, right. and yes, also is sure. there do we have any other recorded place where Yaakov cried? Does he cry when Rachel dies? Um he cries when he meets her. Right, he right. Cries when he meets her, does he cry? I don't think he cries when she dies. Let me see. That's a very good question. I, mean, I don't believe so. It's just actually thirty-five. Let me see. Um, you have Alon Bachut, Alon Bachut when the when the maid dies. When the, right, that's that Jack, Jacob cried. That's the right, that's the people cry. It doesn't say that he. It doesn't say yeah, Jacob cried. No, it doesn't say that. Um, doesn't say that he cried. I think when he meets Esau, he cries, right? Don't they both cry when they meet each other? I think he, when he meets Esau, he cries. right. Right. And it's not, when he meets Joseph, it's not clear who was crying. Right. That's interesting. We'll get to that someday, I hope. It's not clear whether Joseph cries or Jacob cries. So yeah, I mean, Joseph cries many times. Okay, let's, let's begin with chapter 38 now. And we'll continue next week. I'm going to finish it. Chapter 38 is, of course, a famous chapter we all know because it interrupts the narrative. It interrupts the narrative. In other words, if you read 30, 37 and you kept reading 39, you would never miss 38. From this, some of the uh, Bible critics concluded that chapter 38 was sort of put in there. Doesn't really belong here, they claim. Had to put it someplace. So they threw it in here, but obviously it doesn't belong here because it interrupts the narrative. That's the claim of the Bible critics that Casuto argued with, Alter argued with, I argue with, and I have a lot to say about it. And let me just start by making the point that the premise itself is completely idiotic. Let's start with that. Before we get to anything else, the idea that because it interrupts the Joseph story, that it doesn't belong here, it was put in here and has no place here, is an absurd idea. Great writers are not constricted by someone's idea of how a story is told. In fact, the book of Shmuel often jumps back and forth. There's a story of David, stops Shaul, stops David, because writers are not constricted by the great narrator of the book of Breshit does not have to con conform to small minds. Very simple point. There's no any one way to write a story. Sometimes they tell us you write this, write an introduction, you write to this, you end with a conclusion. And maybe we often do that. But there's no reason you always have to conform to that. The same as in music. There are certain forms of music. Mozart in theory always has to follow the form. Neither did Beethoven. Right? So therefore, 
The great ones don't always have to conform. And there's a very good reason that it's, and actually it's the opposite. The very fact that it so-called interrupts the story is reason for us to think that it's here for a very specific reason. Because had the Torah wished it otherwise, it could have continued the story, put it someplace else, or not included it at all, frankly. So if it's here and seems to interrupt, I take the quite exactly opposite inference, which is it's here for a very good reason. And that's how the first verse begins. It came to pass at that time First of all, before we get to the deeper points of this chapter, which I've taught many times and it's always something new. But what's interesting is the very first words of chapter 38. At that time, Judah went down, literally left or went down from his brothers. And we notice two things. First of all, chapter 39 begins, verse number one, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. So 38 begins with Vayered Yudah Me'etechav, and 39 begins with Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma, which itself is interesting, because Judah chooses to leave in 38. Joseph is brought down to Egypt. He didn't choose to leave. He was brought down. But the parallel of the first verse of those two stories is interesting. We'll get to that later. But there's something else interesting as well, which is the verses we just read. What Yaakov said just a few verses earlier, Yaakov said, um, Yaakov first says, the coat of my son, right? Uh, and they, they rose to console him. The sons and the daughters rose up to console him. He refused to be consoled. He said, the next to last verse, two verses ago, I will go down to the grave in mourning, right? That's how the end of chapter 37 is. Chapter 38 starts with, So the Torah is connecting those two things. In point of fact, of course, it was Judah who had the idea at least of selling Joseph. It's the brothers collectively who intended to kill him. So in point of fact, Jacob, who will go down to the grave mourning, Jacob's uncontrollable mourning, is directly related to the brothers generally. And if you have to single out one person, it's got to be Judah, because Judah is the one who says, let's get rid of him. He'll never come home again. Then they cover it up. So we have the three times Vayered. We have the Vayered at the end of 37, two verses laid, Vayered Yudami Etechav. And the next story, of course, picks up with the Yosef Kurad Mitzrayimah. So we'll get to this later on. And now let's take, let's just finish the first verse. So the Hebrew here is JPS is, and he camped near a certain Aduamite whose name was Chira. So first of all, the word Vayet can mean to camp, not Ta'aro, it can mean that. But over here, I don't think it does mean that. Vayet, I would say different, he turned aside unto. Because the word Vayet appears later on, later in the story when Judas, after the death of Judas' wife, he's going to the sheep shearing, he's going to uh, Mardi Gras time or whatever it is. And then it says he's going there and he sees this woman on the, on the, on the road, presumes to be a prostitute. And there it says, in verse number 10, he turned aside to her 
on the road, Vayet Eilel. So we have the Vayet later on, where it means to turn aside. Now, what is the point that I'm trying to make over here about Vayet, not meaning to camp, but to turn aside? Point is this. The Torah tells us that Judah leaves the family. It doesn't tell us why. Afterwards, Judah leaves the family. The family's in the process of dissolving. Joseph's in Mitzrayim. The first three sons have acted inappropriately towards their father in one form or another. And Judah, he also leaves. You have to remember that in the book of Genesis, in Breshit, Jacob has 12 sons. Six of them figure in the narrative. Six do not. Only six figure in the story. Those were Ruve, Shimon, Yehuda, the first four sons of Leah, Yosef, and then Binyamin figures. He never speaks, but he figures. So the two sons of Rachel and the first four sons of Leah figure in the story. The other six sons never figure at all. You never hear anything about the others. So of these six sons, Reuben sleeps with his father and his wife. Shimon and Levi uh, criticize their father severely. He criticizes them. Judah is the cause of the sale of Joseph. He checks out and Joseph's in Egypt. Benjamin never speaks. So basically the five main sons, one form or another, are in conflict with their father or removed from their father. Now here's my point about Judah. The Torah could have said that at that time, Judah left the family. By Yehuda. Right? Yehuda, etc. It says Vayered Yehuda. And then Vayet, to veer off. My point is before you get to the story, the Torah has used two words, two verbs that are not neutral. Vayered is never neutral, and nor is Vayet, to veer off. So there's something about Judah leaving, which is pro the way he leaves, which is problematic. The Midrashim tie it in, and we'll get to this with the previous chapter. This is the guy who said, let's sell our brother. And we'll make a little money on the side too, as a prophet, you know? Whether he says that to convince the others or whatever, he does save Joseph's life. On the other hand, kidnapping and selling is a capital offense in the Torah. But the Vayered, my point here is the choice of language is always, you always have to be very attentive to the choice of language, Vayered and Vayet. And now we come to something else. He veered aside, he connects up to an Adulamite man, Ish Adulami, whose name was Chira. Now, when you read the next few verses, of course, Chira we don't know why it mentions Chira here altogether. He will figure later in the story. But one question we always ask ourselves is, this is one of the great stories of the Bible. But for the storyteller to tell the story, we need certain information. Without basic information, you can't tell your story. So we have Yehuda, who takes out, veers off or whatever, goes down. He turns aside to an Adomite man whose name was Chira. Now, leaving a Dolomite man for now, I'll come back to that later, actually. I have a thought of I figure the story of King David, Ram Shaul, and Ram figures way, and we'll get to that. But now the question is, the meaning, if any, why does Chira, I think, is related to the word that appears, which is chorim. Chorim in the Bible means princes. 
P-R-I-N-C-E-S, princes, prince, plural of prince. That's one of the meetings of Cholim. He veered aside to a man whose name was Prince. And we'll get to this later on about Prince. Okay, we'll see. But let's keep that in mind. So he veers off, but he's with a, some fellow named Chira. And of course, the question will be, why do we care about Chira in the first place? So we'll get back to Chira. Now we have information that we need to tell our story. The second verse is Vayar Shami Uda Banish Kanan Yushmoshua, Vayikrachela Vayavoila. In Aduram, Judas saw there the daughter of a Canaanite man whose name was Shua. Vayikrachela Vayavoila. He took her and he went in onto her. Once again, we can ask the question, actually, several questions. What is the meaning of, of Shua? Right? We have the name Yoshua. Yoshua, right? Shua, I believe, also means a prince. In biblical Hebrew, you can look it up. It means a prince, king, or a prince. So we have in the first two verses, we have Judah connecting in what, verse number one to prince, and in verse number two, marries the daughter of a man named Prince, Shua. And now the question is, he's, now, of course, the point is, we need this to tell the story. We need the characters. When there are four characters. So the next three verses, we Ratar Ben, she bore a child, Shimo Er, and he, he presumably Judah named his first son Er. Ratar Od Ben in the next verse, Shimo Omnan, she named child number two Omnan. He names the first son, she named the second, his wife. Batosef Od Ben, child number three is born. She named him Shela. And he, Judah, was in a place called Kaziv when she gave birth to him. And now the next verse, Now Judah, like a good father, finds a wife for his oldest son, Er. Her name was Tamar. These are the first six verses of chapter 38. And now we come to a very important point about these six verses. I made this point in the past, but I'll repeat it now. It's a point that's been lost on. I've never seen anybody else who made the point, so I'm going to make this point. And the point is that on one hand, what you have in the first six verses is information necessary for a story. These are the cast of characters in this story. There is Judah, of course. There are his three sons. And there is his daughter, Tamar. And later on in the story, even Chira, the Adulamite, will factor in. So the Torah says, the storyteller tells us, these are the people who will figure in this story of chapter 38. Amazing story. But of course, that's not all the Torah is doing. In, in giving us this, this information, this is an incredibly important point. The Torah does so much more through, uh, through, by connecting us to other texts, through nuance, etc. For example, let's take verse number two. Let's take verse number two. Judas saw there the daughter of a Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went in unto her. And here the point is, so, 
level toad. And then he that the Canaanite Graham has a whole story with his servant. Don't get involved with the Canaanites. Whatever you do, don't find the wife of your son from the Canaanites. You gotta go back to my home, etc. That's queer. But there's something else interesting over here, and that is the two words that appear in verse number two, which is seeing and taking. Seeing and taking, and I would say taking something which is problematic. That's the primal sin of the, of the Bible. The woman saw that the fruit was good and she took it. The B'nai of chapter six, uh, see the women, the daughters of the humans, and they take them. Abraham says to Sarah in chapter 12, we're going down to Egypt. Say you're my sister, because when they see you, they're going to take you. And that's exactly all three. We have seeing, we have taking, and actually in those three, we even have told that appears, factors in, in all three stories. And the point over here in verse number two, nothing is innocent. And Judah sees and takes, given the context of the book of, in which we find the story, namely Breshit. It is not innocent. Seeing and taking the daughter of the Canaanite must be understood, says the Torah, in light of those three stories that proceed. In fact, I would add a fourth story that proceeds. There's the, there's the story of taking the forbidden fruit of chapter three. There's the story of B'nai Elohim of chapter six. There's the story of Abraham and Sarah in chapter 12. And there's the story of Shechem in chapter 34. They you have the seeing and the taking. There you have the seeing and taking. So we have four stories. And the last two, it's Mitzrayim and Canaan. And now we have Judah seeing the daughter of the Canaanite and taking. What does it say about Judah? Well, what it says about Judah obviously is, is something Canaanite-ish about the behavior of Yehuda. The Torah has zero interest, actually. Yes, dissent is the right word. The Torah has zero interest, apologists notwithstanding, of presenting its characters necessarily in a wonderful light. This is a person responsible in one form or another for the kidnapping of his brother and sending him down to Mitzrayim. I mean, Joseph is amazing, but normally you go down as a slave in Egypt. Nothing good's gonna happen to you there. This guy's responsible. We hold him responsible. And he was part of the initial idea of killing his brother and all of them collectively have fooled their, tricked their father. Remember dipping in the blood of the goat. The goat in this book is what we use to deceive. Jacob used the goat skins to deceive his father. So important to the fact, this is not just a piece of information. This is a critique. That is obvious. Now I'll say something that's not obvious, but I think it's right which is something else, which is not a moral critique. But there's something curious about the next three verses. And that is that Judah sees the daughter of the Canaanite, the unnamed wife, Batshua, she's called. And very, very quickly, he has one child after the next. She gets pregnant, 
child number one. She gets pregnant, child number two. She gets pregnant, child number three. And here, and here perhaps given the story, when you read the whole story, there's something interesting about this, because we know, since we have all been studying the book of Breshit, and everybody reads chapter 38, it's read the first 37 chapters, that we know that in the book of Breshit, when it comes to the matriarchs, for example, each of them, with one exception, has great trouble having children. That the child that's born later, okay? Way is the exception, but they got intervenes on her behalf because she's unloved or hated. So the fact question for Peter, who would be with these three kids? They're born right away, sees, takes three of them. Now, later on, we understand well that from child one, who will die shortly, who will die shortly, nor from child number three. The line of Judah will proceed from none of these three. When you read the story, you get a sense of it's going to be this cast of characters, but that's not the way it's going to play out. Surprise, it will proceed from none of these that are born immediately. It will, it will come from a completely different place and a very surprising place. Now, we have something else curious over here, which is the names of the children from two perspectives. First of all, the names themselves are interesting. The first two names, Er and Onan, are bad names. Er means barren. We had actually in this past week's and actually you didn't have an after I had it, because you read Bahar, right? You have we read Bahukotai, actually. So we're off a week. But in the Haftar for Bukhukotai, which you read next week, right? But I did already. RR, something which is desolate, right? So the point is, Er is a negative name. Onan is certainly a negative name. Avavavnun, Oven, sinfulness. So Er and Onan reminds me of what you have in the Book of Ruth, Machlon and Kilion, Doom and Doom, you know? It's the names are not just names, obviously. The names are representations of what these two people are. So they're negative. Name number three is Sheva, Shin Lamed Hay. And Shin Lamed Hay, there are two possibilities for understanding what Shin Lamed Hay means. One is that Shin Lamed Hay, some people have disputed this because they claim in biblical Hebrew it doesn't actually uh, mean this. But Shin Lamed Hay could be read as Shela, Harus, H E R S, right? Um, Yes, uh, Shmuel is suggesting that Sheila means to take off, to that is possible. I'm not sure what that would mean in the context of the story over here. But the word Sheila in the Bible, I think I think the verb is Nashal, I believe it's not Shinlam. But uh, I think it's Nashal. But Sheila does appear elsewhere. And in modern Hebrew, Larry, for example, Shunammite woman, the story of Elisha, she says there, a child dies. I'll touch and she says to Elisha, I warned you, she said, I'll touch loyalty. in modern Hebrew means to deceive. Shelah means deception. And I, I think that's the primary meaning of the word Shelah, 
for a different reason. Because the Torah says something which seems to be completely superfluous in, the, in this information it gives us, which is, means to deceive. In fact, Shunamai woman says both to Alicia. So and Judah was Judah was in deception when she gave birth in a place called Kaziv. There is a place called Kaziv in the Bible. So we have the idea of deception. And what is the point over here? The point is that what the Torah is doing is setting up an expectation. In other words, the point of the storyteller is to give information for the story. But notice that it's not just giving information. It said so many things already before you get to the story. It creates an expectation. Hashraya in modern Hebrew, hashraya atzmit is self, self-delusion, right? Self-delusion, hashraya atzmit is self-delusion. In other words, you see something, but things are not what they appear to be. Deception. We have it in the in the Hallel prayer. Aniyomati bechavzik, kol adam kozev. All people lie. All people deceive. All people disappoint. So here, here we have something, and now there's something else about these three verses, which is also interesting. And that is that the three children born to Judah and Mrs. daughter of Canaanite, that what's interesting is the name. Who gives the name? There's the name and there's who gives the name. So son number one is the masculine. He called him heir. Presumably it means the father. Judah named his first son heir. Child number two, says she named him Onan. So he names child number one and she named child number two. Child number three, I guess you would expect that maybe he would name, maybe they're going in order, but no. Child number three, she named him Shelah. And then the Torah says, and he was in Kaziv when she bore him. Now we understand Kaziv, what the Torah is getting at in Shelah. But what's curious is you wonder whether maybe he isn't even there. Maybe he's an absentee father. Maybe he's in Kaziv when she, when she bore him. I mean, we don't know. Was she in Kaziv as well? But it says he's in Kaziv. My point is, what it would appear to me in these three namings is progressive distancing on the part of Judah. He names the first one. He doesn't name the second one. And the third one, he doesn't name, and not only not that, he's in a place called Kaziv. And now Judah finds a wife for his oldest son, her name was Tamar. And here's what's interesting. We haven't begun our story yet. But when it comes to Tamar, the Torah never tells us anything about Tamar's lineage. All we know about Tamar is her name. We know zero about her. You, one can speculate she must have been a Canaanite. Speculate all you want. But the Torah never identifies her. Only has a name. And that is in striking contrast to Yehuda's own wife, who has no name. And all we know about Judah's own wife is she's the Bat Ish Kanani, she's the daughter of the Canaanite. So there's something about Tamar in the context of it, which is striking. One might say she's the opposite of Judah's own wife, Bat Shua, who is 
Mrs. Canaanite with no name, nameless Canaanite woman that he sees and takes. But in the case of Tamar, the Torah, and the Torah, I don't think even wants us to speculate. This woman, is she a Canaanite? No, she's not actually a Canaanite. I know she may be technically a Canaanite, but from the Torah's perspective, no. We don't want to see her as a Canaanite at all. She is Tamar. And she will turn out to be one of the, one might say in terms of the plot of the book of Breshit, I would, you can make the argument, she's the most important person in the book of Genesis in terms of plot, because she will be the one who will get Judah to see the light. She will get, be the one to get Judah to understand his responsibilities towards the family. And he, Judah then will be the one, the catalyst to bring the family together. They'll never do it unless his Rebbe taught him what to do. And he has a Rebbe, he's very fortunate. Her name is Tamar. She's gonna tell him, and then she disappears off the stage because she's done what she has to do, namely teach him how to behave in life. So this Tamar, it's incredible that the person, the great Rebbe of Judah, who then becomes in a way Jacob's teacher too, because he's gonna tell Jacob what Jacob has to do, send Benjamin down, etc., takes all the responsibility, that it's this person, whom the Torah never identifies as part of the covenantal family at all, actually. I mean, she becomes part of the family, for sure. But she is a mystery woman. I mean, who is she? You know nothing about her. The Torah purposely conceals her, her identity. You only know one thing about her. Her name is Tamar. Now, names are very interesting and important. So we, should, we have to think about the name Tamar itself that will come to down the road. Let me stop at this point and take comments or questions. We're about, this is one of the great, whatever you think of the Bible, I'll tell you something. We have one heck of a storyteller here. This is a great story. It's beyond belief, great story, compelling story. And yes, it's here in chapter 38 for a very good reason, because it's the key story from the plot, because, it's, because the reader is wondering, can you ever put this family back together again? Says the Torah in chapter 38, it is possible. And the prescription is one given by Tamar to Judah in chapter 38. And Judah's greatness is he understands it perfectly well. And then he puts it into, into he implements it later on in Breshit, and that's what creates the bayat. With, together with Yaakov, the two of them together create the bayat. Okay, I'll, let me just stop here and take comments or questions. And next week, we do meet next week for the last session of this uh, before we continue in the future, hopefully. I don't know if we'll finish the chapter or not, but it's, uh, it's a compelling story. Okay, does anybody have comments or questions? Can I can I ask, um, Rabbi Silver, is Shua is the name of the wife of Judah or the or the name of the parent? Of parent. Hen the parent. Oh, the parent. Okay, so that's why you said so we don't know. And then let me just ask you quick, quickly, Judah thinks that Joseph is going to be killed, right? He doesn't know that Reuben has this plot to come back and save him. So what right. was so bad about him then thinking, well, I don't want him to die. Let's just sell him. And and why why was that such a terrible? I mean, it's all terrible no, that he would do it in the it's first place. It's not terrible to save his life. It's good that he wants to save his life. But what he should have said is what Reuben was thinking. Listen, he's our brother. I don't like him, you don't like him, but he is our brother, he's our father's son. Let's not kill him, let's take him out of the pit and send him back home. That's what Ruben wants. Uh, okay, so. The terrible yeah, part is selling terrible. the guy into, when you sell, basically, yeah. you're selling someone 
he ends up in Egypt, right? Right. The Ishmaelites are carrying goods, bringing down to Mitzrayim. Right. What we know of Mitzrayim so far in this book is not very good. Right. They mistreat people. They enslave people. So basically, it's human trafficking when it comes right down to it, is what okay. you're talking about. Yeah. And I don't have too many good words to say about human traffickers. Now, <laughs> it's better than, maybe better than, maybe better than killing, but right. uh, it's a bad thing. And you, again, if you don't kill him, he may live to, he may, as Joseph does, he survives and not only survives, he manages through God, with God's good grace and his own particular genius to rise to positions of prominence in Mitzrayim, still in Egypt. Right. So uh, the negative oh. thing is not, the positive is, and the positive, he understands some sense of, we'll talk about this next week. He, he understands some sense of brotherly responsibility, but obviously he doesn't yeah. understand it to the end. Otherwise, you wouldn't say, let's sell him. And he adds, and we'll make a profit on it too. You know, mm -hmm. So that's yeah. a, obviously a negative. That was my oh, point. Thank you. Thank we'll get more to this next week. We'll see. We'll see how far we get next time. Thank you. Uh, anybody else for last comment? If not, we'll stop at this point and uh, we'll continue next week with Judah and Tamar. Hopefully we can, it's a good stopping point. Then sometime in the future, we will uh, try to finish the book of Breshit. Um, okay then, thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you. Uh, we do have some questions. Thank you, thank you. Maybe you, want to, thank uh, you Rabbi Silber. Yes. yes. Thank you. Okay. I think I think we did have one more question from uh, Eva Davidson. Do you yeah, a quick question. Point? Yes, uh, you keep mentioning his wife, but it doesn't say he married her. It says he saw her and he took her. Well, I, right. So taking is in the um, of the right. Taking is in the Chumash. That's what it says. Kikach ishishad. We translate uh -huh. as marriage. Uh -huh. Right. That's how we translate it. Again, we do meet next week. We meet next Sunday. Okay. And that will be the last class for these sessions. Hopefully in the future, other things as well. Thank you all very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, everyone who joined us. Um, and you, we are continuing with Rabbi Zakir's class this evening, the Scope of Torah at 8 o'clock. Uh, and you can find out about all of our other events and classes at drisha.org slash classes. Um, so see you all next week. Thank you so much, Rabbi Silver. And... Have a good week.